Good morning. Just wanted to clear up one announcement. They were telling everybody that Doug Batchelor was going to be here for church today. And I think John was helping out with that information. He didn't make it, so I'm going to take his place, although we do look alike. Um, I've gone to camp meetings, and I have had little Asian ladies come up to me and say, Pastor Batchelor, can I ask you a question? I'm tempted sometimes to respond, but um, didn't want to be dishonest. So The clock says um, 7.48, so it looks like I've got a few hours today. <laughs> Thank you. It's interesting. Um, while thinking and planning about this sermon, um, Pastor Schmidt asked me to preach about a month and a half ago. I didn't really know what to say. And Doug preached last week on Enoch. Last night, Brother Sosa gave a Vespers on character development. And um, it seems the Spirit has been coordinating things because I had been planning to do mine on this sort of topic all along. So it sort of fits sort of with what we've been talking about in the past. And I thank Doug for his, I'll get his sermon and listen to it. Um, it fits with what I think the Spirit is impressing people with what is important today. Let me start out with a story. On May 26, 2006, a mountaineer, Australian mountaineer by the name of Lincoln Hall, stood on the mount, on top of Mount Everest. He realized his the dreams of a lifetime. As you might know, it cost around $100,000 to pay your way onto an expedition. You have to run 10 miles a day for at least two years before you do it, and you have to climb at least two other peaks over 21,000 feet. So he had invested a lot of time and energy into getting there. And of course, when you're on top, you've got to go back down. And people realize most accidents happen on the way down. So after a few pictures, he makes his way down the ridge he'd just come up. Well, about a thousand feet down from the top, he starts getting sick. And um, so sick he couldn't go on any further. The expedition leader calls a halt. The Sherpas who are along with him start ministering oxygen to him, food, liquids, to no avail. For hour after hour after hour, they work with him until their oxygen is almost spent and the sun is almost down. The expedition leader says, you know what? It's a tough call to make, but we're going to have to leave you here on the ridge at 28,200 feet. And we're going to have to go down to camp without you. The next morning... American expedition led by Dan Mazur was within two hours of the summit. And you may have heard this story on the news. This is back in 2006. They were within sight of the summit. They were along the knife-ed ridge that goes to the summit. And they could taste victory, basically. They'd put a lot of time and effort into their uh, journey as well. But just before them, amazingly, they see a man sitting on a ridge, two feet wide, with an 8,000-foot drop to China on one side and a 6,000-foot drop to Nepal and Tibet on the other. Alive. He was unzipping his suit. He had no water, no oxygen. He had no um, cap on. He had no sunglasses on, no ice axe. And he said to Dan Mazur, the leader of the American expedition, I bet you're surprised to see me here. Obviously, I'm really surprised. What are you doing here? Um... It was Lincoln Hall. He had survived the night at 28,200 feet and was still alive. 
At this point, the leader of the expedition, Dan Mazur, had to make a split decision. With victory within an hour and a half away, they could see the summit. After spending years of training and countless dollars on getting to this point, they would either have to stop and help this man or go past and, and realize their dream and come back, risking the fact that Lincoln Hall might be dead. Dan Mazur made a split decision. He said the decision was simple. There was no option. We had to try to at least save this man. And for the next eight hours, this 12-man expedition gave him oxygen, lower him carefully down with ropes because it was about a four or 5,000 foot descent to the next camp. And by the time that evening they got Lincoln Hall back to the next camp, he was stable. On the way down, another group passed them by, seeing that they were having trouble lowering Lincoln Hall down. And um, Dan Mazur asked them if they would help, and they said, no, we don't speak any English. And they kept going to the summit. Later that night, they heard them talking in their tent, speaking fluent English, however. Dan Mazur, looking back on this incident, said, it was worth it. You can always go back to the summit, but you only have one life to live. If we had left the man there to die, that would have always been on my mind. How could you live with yourself? And by the time he and his expedition got back to base camp, they were too exhausted to make an attempt on the mountain. It has been said, and you've heard it, I'm sure, that a crisis reveals your character. Isn't that true? It Does it create a character? It never creates a character. The crisis that Dan Mazur faced there in deciding, shall I go for the top or shall I help this man? That crisis didn't change who he was. It just revealed who he was. The same crisis of the men who passed Lincoln Hall by revealed who they were. Adventists have long been preaching about a last day crisis, haven't we? For 150 or 60 years, we've been talking about it. Revelation 13 is clear. There's going to be economic sanctions. There is going to be a Sunday law. There are going to be seven last plagues. There are going to be a tremendous time of persecution. And we can't even fathom that. And a lot of Adventists are waiting, and a lot of Christians are waiting, for that crisis to come along and change them. Will it? The crisis itself will not change you because characters cannot be formed overnight. Characters must be developed over what? It takes time. And many, for convenience sake, for expediency's sake, or for unwillingness to suffer, will at the very end say, you know what, maybe we were wrong all along. Unwilling to sacrifice because of their characters. So the first important point I kind of wanted to make today is don't wait until the very last to change you. Make those changes today. We've been focusing a lot over the last 150 years on Revelation 14. You know what they are? They're called the three angels' messages. I don't believe anything's wrong with the messages, but my question to you is, why are we still here? We've been 
proclaiming them now for 150 to 60 years. Is there something wrong with our message? I think one of the major reasons why we, we struggle sometimes being frustrated, where's the Lord? Why do we keep waiting? Is because we focus on Revelation 14 and not Revelation 18. Turn to Revelation 18, verse 1. Revelation 18, verse 1. And after these things, I'm reading from the King James, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his what? With his glory. Does it say the earth was lighted with his doctrines? Does it say that the earth was lighted with evangelism? Please don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not making fun of those things. I'm a strong supporter in public evangelism and doctrine. But the Bible says the earth was lighted with his what? With glory. With glory. So what makes the difference at the end of time... Evidently, because right after this we see the end time events all happening very quickly, is a group of people, this angel represents a group of people, proclaiming something with power, but doing it with great glory. Great glory. It is the glory then, not primarily doctrines, not primarily teachings, that caused the last message to go quickly to the world. What is this glory that lightens the world? Now, most of you know where I'm going with this. You've heard about it. But if it's review for you and there's a few people that haven't heard, that's fine as well. But let's turn back to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. And let's look at verse, starting in verse 17. Now, you remember the story. Moses has been on top of Mount Sinai, hasn't he, for 40 days. And um, God has supernaturally sustained him. He's eaten no food. He's had no water. And at the end of 40 days, during this time, God has communicated the ceremonial law to him. Moses has been writing this stuff down. At the end of the 40 days, Moses asked God a question. Verse 17. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing that thou hast spoken, for you have found grace in my sight. I know you by name. Verse 18, and he said, Mrs. Moses talking, I beseech thee, that's the King James, show me thy what? Glory. Verse 19, God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of God before you and be gracious unto whom I will be gracious to, and I will show mercy unto whom I will show mercy to. Very interesting. When Moses asked to see God's glory, how does God respond? I'm going to do what? Proclaim my, my name. Verse 19. I am going to proclaim my name. Now, the next day this happens, turn over to verse chapter 34, Exodus 34. And you know the story. The song, A Cleft in a Rock, is taken from this. God puts Moses back in that little cleft, doesn't he? Covers him over and passes by. And in verse 5 and 6, God descends to the cloud. This microphone really seems live to me. 
I feel like the farther back I stand, it almost talks to me louder. <laughs> um, that's a little better. The Lord descended, verse 5, in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord passed by him saying, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. God comes down and proclaims his name. What are these names? If I said that Cal, my friend Cal, is kind, he's energetic, if I said my friend Doug Hill is friendly, outgoing, what are these things I'm telling you about them? These are their character traits, right? Their character traits. Lord God, merciful, gracious, abounding in goodness, truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving, and the very end, by no means clearing the guilty. So not as the only God of love, he's a God of, he's a God of justice. It's a balanced view of God. So when you think of the word glory, then you automatically kick into your mind what word? Character. Wherever you see the word glory in the Bible, almost everywhere you see it, you transfer that word glory for character because that's what the word glory means. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'll tell you my name. And his name was these different things. Therefore, in the Bible, glory equals character. Now, you've heard the phrase before, I'm sure, you can't take it with you. Is that true? Is there anything we, take, is there anything we don't take? I'm not asking this correctly. What, what is it that we take to heaven, if anything? Our characters. When Jesus comes, is he going to magically change your character? You know, a lot of us are confused on this area. If we are thinking about sports right now, we're thinking about fashion or music or entertainment, or if we're thinking about our job or stressing out about our family, if we're thinking about, and I'm talking about focusing on here, not just, not just thinking, but if it becomes a part of your life that you focus on, is God going to change that focus when he comes? I don't believe he will. And, however, if we're focusing upon Christ, and like Dan Mazur did, on others and helping others, when Christ comes, it will be only natural then for us to want to be with heavenly beings who are loving and, and um, want to be with uh, help other people. The book Education, page 225, we have a remarkable statement. Character building is the most important work ever entrusted to human beings. What was character building and never before was its diligent study so important as now is evangelism the most important work ever entrusted to human beings as important as that is forgive me for this Shane it's handing out glow tracks the most important work ever entrusted to human beings thank you but it's right up there as important as these are, can we ever be effective witnesses for Christ if we're not Christ-like in character? We cannot. So, glory then is character. What is character? This is sort of 
Now, if you were at the Vespers last night, uh, Pastor uh, Sasa gave this away, and I was glad he did. But if you didn't hear him, I guess that's too bad. I'm going to tell you now, though. One definition I like, and I'm sure you've heard it, is that character is who you are when nobody is what? Character is who you are when nobody's watching, when you're all alone. If you want to know who you really are, just go by yourself for a while. Now, I wasn't really satisfied with that being a really good answer, so I typed in, and if you want to get answers, where do you go? You go to Google. But Google's only as smart as the people that put the information in, so I have a couple answers here from Google. Character, the complex of mental and ethical traits making up a person. The stable and distinctive qualities built into an individual's life which determine his or her response regardless of circumstances. Now, does everybody understand what character is? Um, it seems a bit vague. So I said, well, why don't I turn to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say? Now, we know that the character is located in our where? What physical part of our body? The Bible calls it the heart, right? Our characters are located in our hearts. And that's not the organ that pumps blood, as you know. That is in our mind. Now, according to Proverbs 23, verse 7, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his what? Heart, so is he. Genesis chapter three, uh, 6, verse 3, it said, The thoughts of their heart were evil only continually. So one thing we obviously do in our hearts is we do what? We think. But the Bible also makes it very clear. A merry heart does good like... The Bible talks about a fearful heart. It talks about an angry heart. It talks about a sorrowful heart. A fearful heart. What are these different things being mentioned? These are, I heard, these are emotions. So not only does thinking go on in your heart, but also your feelings go on in your heart. So the character then is really a makeup of your thoughts and your feelings. Character is your thoughts and your feelings. A friend of mine puts it this way. You may not be who you think you are, but who you think you are. Did you get that? You may not be who you think you are, but who you think you are. Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 310, if you're taking notes. If the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong, and the thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character. What is our character? Our thoughts and feelings combined. So then if I want a Christ-like character, I must learn to think like Christ does, don't I? Towards Christ. Others, towards God, towards myself, and towards circumstances. I must have, in the, in the words of Philippians chapter 2, I must have the mind of Christ to think and feel like Jesus did. Now, is this a little bit easy, harder to do than acting like Christians at church? Is it easy to act like a Christian, yes or no? Very easy. Pharisees were really good at it. And where, where especially is it easy to act like a Christian? There's no place easier than here at church, is there? What is the hardest place to act like a Christian? Now, don't run over to the organ. 
But if you want to know who I'm like or anyone is like, ask their wife, their husband, or their children. Because the home reveals whether or not you're a Christian. You can put on a show here, but the home is the place. And it's possible if ego motivation is strong enough and if you have enough people looking at you to put on a good show like the Pharisees did. But Christ revealed that. He pulled that back. He said, you know what? You guys are like whited sepulchers. Inside is where I'm looking. I don't care what you're doing, not nearly as much as why you're doing it. What are the thoughts and feelings that are motivating what you're doing? You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said of old that if you commit adultery, you've sinned. How did Jesus say it? That if you've looked upon a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed the sin, haven't you? You've said before that if you stick a knife in somebody, you've actually killed them. But I say to you that if you hate somebody, you've committed the act already. Jesus is not interested primarily in what we do. And that's why the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet, is the only commandment in which you don't do anything, isn't it? It's something that goes on in your mind. Coveting is not something you do in front of people. Well, Brent, that's very good and very interesting. Um, how do I know if I have a Christ-like character? Good question. Listen to yourself. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the what? The character is located in the heart. If you want to know whether or not you have a Christ-like character, listen to your conversations. And I would submit, and this is sermons to me today more than is anybody else here, I would submit that if you can go a whole day without mentioning the name of Christ, that that should be a red flag. That should tell you that your thoughts and your feelings, i.e. your character, the only thing you take to heaven, is not focused on who? It's not focused on Christ. It might be focused on the American Idol. It might be focused on Dancing with Stars and some of these other shows. I haven't seen any of them. I've just heard about them. But you can be focusing on a lot of things. And Christ could be miles away, and yet you might look like a Christian. Listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. Now, I'm not saying that we have to talk about Jesus. and you know, what, you know what I'm talking about. Some people are obnoxious with it, and they just go around, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and they run around, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and they sound like a broken record player after a while. I used to have, Nina and I had a friend that did that. She must have said, praise the Lord, 50 times while we were at the dinner table. I'm not saying to go around and do that all the time. But if the Lord is on your hearts and on your thoughts and feelings, wouldn't you expect to hear his name at least once or twice a day while you talk to other people? The Bible exhorts ourselves to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. And I'm not trying to be hard on anybody. I'm preaching this to myself. We need to get serious. We have a character developed. We don't have much time to develop the character. And our thoughts and feelings are the only thing that matter to Christ. He wants to know what motivates our obedience. Now, where is God's glory revealed? Let's turn to Psalms 19, verse 1. Psalms chapter 19, verse 1.
Everybody have it? Amen? The heavens declare the what? The glory of God. And the firmament shows His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory, which is God's, which, which represents His thoughts and His feelings. So you could substitute then by doing algebra, the heavens declare the thoughts and the feelings of God, right? The heavens declare. Have you ever gone out on a dark night? I know it's tough in Beaumont. It's hard in Ukaipa. And looked up at the heavens. Where's my brother Richard at? Brother Hartley. He went out. He could come up here and probably tell you more about it than I do. I'll just summarize it. He was converted on a northern Nevada desert. And I'm paraphrasing his experience. He was frustrated. He was kind of looking for God. He pulled off a highway, walked out, way out into the desert by himself, and looked up in that crystal clear evening, looked up at the stars and says, God, um, I'm not really sure. Did you say, I want you, or I love you, or I, I, are, help me. God, help me. And at that moment, and this can happen without a Bible, at that moment, he felt totally at peace with God. He had seen God's character in the stars, in the heavens, and that character then converted him. So, you can see God's character revealed in nature. Although it's marred, it's there. Now let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Where else is God's character revealed? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. This is a passage we don't look at very often. <clears throat> but if the ministration of death, verse 7, King James, written and engraved in stones was what? Was glorious. So that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Now, what is this ministration of death? written and engraved in stones. I heard it. This is God's law. Now, how is God's law a ministration of death? God's law is not anything that saves you, is it? Can God's law save us? What is its purpose? Like a mirror, right? It shows us where our defects are. And number two, it condemns us. It is a ministration of death so that we will flee to the gospel and the cross, right? So, the ministration of death, i.e. God's law, written in graves and stones, was glorious. And there's our key word. That represents God's character. And you all know that if you've been around for a little while as a Christian, that God's law is a transcript of his very what? Of his very character. And finally, not finally, but most explicitly and clearly, God's glory was revealed where? John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14. Do you mind turning in your Bible so much today? I'm sorry, I'm keeping you a little bit busy. <laughs> well, when I grew up in the church back in the 60s, man, that's the way the Adventist pastors would preach. They would move you back and forth, and you would write down about 25 texts for the day. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word was made 
flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his what? Which means his? Which refers to his? Thoughts and his feelings. And we beheld his thoughts and feelings. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Therefore, the clearest revelation of who God was, was seen clearly in who? In Jesus Christ. Now turn to an amazing text. When I saw this, I really jumped. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. <clears throat> Picking up verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Christ's sake. Verse 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the what? Of the glory or the character of God. Where? I just, to me, that you could, I could just quit right now with that. Where is your character most clearly seen? It is seen in your face. Because your face expresses anger, fear, anxiety, love. And you know, those of you that are married, how you say something is far more important than what you say. You can say something and your spouse will look at you and go, that's not what you mean. Because your character is written on your face. What was it that attracted people to Jesus then? Listen to this amazing statement taken from Desire of Ages, page 254. The beauty of his countenance, the loveliness of his character, above all, the love expressed in look and tone drew to him all who were not hardened in unbelief. Had it not been for the sweet, sympathetic spirit that shone out in every look and word, he would not have attracted the large congregations that he did. What was it that caused many people to follow Jesus? Was it his miracles, primarily? Was it primarily what he taught? Had it not been for that sweet, loving spirit that shone out in every look, he would not have attracted the large congregations he did. What kind of a face do you have? What kind of a face do I have? Does it show anxiety or peace? Does it show sadness or joy? Does it show anger or love? No, I'm not suggesting that we have to go around with a big grin painted on our face. It looks fake. But again, shouldn't our face show that Christ is living in our hearts? And when you're going and witnessing door-to-door -door or handing out tracts or doing evangelism or one-on-one -on -one Bible study, the person that's listening may be able to hear all the facts. And you can argue someone into a corner with doctrine. And they will have to admit, at least mentally, that you're right. But will they accept it with their hearts? Because a loving spirit will attract love in someone else. And that is what really draws people. Now... Lastly here, where was God's glory also to be revealed? Look at Psalms chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Psalms chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. 
What is man, verse 4, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Verse 5, for you have made man a little lower than the angels, and have crowned him with what? Glory and with honor. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, says, man whom I've created for my glory. Evidently, human beings were created to reveal God's character, i.e. his thoughts and feelings, to the universe. And we naturally reflected that glory at creation because we had God's law where? When Adam and Eve were created originally, where was their law? was God's law? It was on their hearts. But in the garden long ago at the fall, when Satan tempted our fathers and mother, father and mother to sin, what happened to God's law in our hearts? First Samuel says it's called Ichabod. The glory departed. God's law was removed from our hearts. And instead of having the law of love on our hearts, we had the law of what placed? Steps to Christ, page 17. Adam and Eve were perfect in his being and in harmony with God. His thoughts were pure. His aims were holy. But through disobedience, selfishness took the place of love. And now... Mankind, created originally in the image of God, lives to gratify and glorify who? Himself, not others in God. They live to gratify himself. That's why Paul could say in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory or the character or the thoughts and feelings of God. In the Greek, the word fall short means continue to. It's in the ongoing active imperative. Continue to fall short of the glory of God. That's the way we are by birth. That's why Peter in 1 Peter 1.24 can say the glory of man is as the flower of grass. It's cut down, and in the evening it's perished. By nature, we have no glory. The glory is departed. And that would have remained that way forever had it not been for the cross. And at the cross, we are brought face to face with love and selfishness. And Jesus bought back the new covenant promise at the cross so that all those that are willing to and want to can have a new heart placed in them with what on it? God's law, which is a transcript of his character. We can have the glory back. Second Corinthians 3.18. This was our text for the day. Second Corinthians 3.18. How do we get the glory back? But we all, and the King James, James says with open face, the better translation there in the Greek is unveiled because that's exactly what Moses did. What did he have to do when he came down to the children of Israel? He had to put a veil over his face. But we all now with unveiled face, beholding as in a, in a mirror, or a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from what? Glory to glory, even by who? Do we do the changing? But do we have any part in it? According to chapter uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, what is our cooperative role? No? 
the verse we just read it, what is our cooperative role? To behold the glory of the Lord. Do you see it there? Our cooperative role. We can't just let go and let God. We have something to do here. And God says, you know what? I'm going to power my spirit. He's going to energize you. He's going to empower you to do this. But you've got to do your part. You have got to behold the glory. You've got to look at glory to reflect glory. And where do we find this glory? Most clearly revealed. We can find it in nature. We can look at it and see it in the law. But the clearest revelation of God's glory is revealed in His Word. And again, we talk about this over and over. It all comes back to the Bible. If you and I are not spending that thoughtful hour every day in contemplation of the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes, we can never have thoughts and feelings like Jesus. We can put on a show at church. We can impress people in nominating committee. We can do a great job as a head elder. But until we'll be spending time every day contemplating Christ and make his thoughts and feelings our very own, that will never happen. So it comes back to Bible study. In conclusion, I wrote down here, Jesus has a problem. Does he ever have a problem? John, <laughs> that's a classic. He has a problem with us. That's right. John chapter 17. In conclusion, John chapter 17. He's got a huge problem with some of us. But he's not through with us. Praise the Lord. Amen. John chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 4, this is Jesus talking. I have glorified you on earth. Is that present tense or past? The word glorified is past tense. I have finished the job. I have represented your thoughts and feelings to mankind on earth. I have glorified you. I've finished the work you gave me to do. So, Jesus came to glorify who? The Father. What is Jesus' problem? Anybody see it? Who is going to glorify Him? Look at verse 10. Look at nine, verses 9 and 10. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. Verse 10. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in who? Jesus needs us. That takes the legalism out of obedience, doesn't it? Because, well, Lord, I love you. You died for me. What do you want me to do? I want you to obey me. If you love me, keep my commandments. And you know the great text in Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, that they may glorify your Father in heaven. We are representing now Christ. And we're kind of a motley crew as I look around and look at myself. There are a lot of imperfections, a lot of rough edges, right? But we're all God has. And that's why Doug, and that's why Shane and Mary, and that's why Mary and some of the rest of you, you are all Christ has to represent Him to the world. What was Jesus like? How did Jesus act in circumstances? 
How did Jesus witness? How does Jesus relate to people? Um, Elder Sasha, uh, Sasha, excuse me, called me up. No, no, no. I'm just saying, you called me up. You okay. He called me up this morning and he told me, you know what, um, character, and I don't know how he knew, but he just looked at the title of my sermon. That, you know, we don't have much time to develop a character, and we don't. Jesus is coming back. What is he waiting for? Is he waiting for more tsunamis and earthquakes? Is he waiting for more people to die of AIDS? Is he a God that enjoys watching people die down here? What is God waiting for? He's waiting for someone to represent him. He represented his father. Who is going to represent me down there? And he's waiting and he's looking and he has to have someone do it. And there is going to be a group of people that do it. Brother Sosson wanted me to read this. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus. Where, where all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly would the whole world be sown with the, and ripened, excuse me, the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather his precious grain. And I wanted to finish with my last quote, and that is found in the same book, page 415. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of the character of love. The last revelation to human beings, and again, please don't misunderstand me, is not doctrine. The message is important, but how the messenger gives it is more important. It is the character of love shining out of the face of the one giving the doctrines that causes the message to go. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank You for the message of your glory, and we thank you for leaving your spirit to help, help us to get thoughts and feelings like Jesus. We thank you so much for your word, and we pray this week that our faces will show that our thoughts and feelings are in harmony with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And as a final song, let's go ahead and turn to page 245, More About Jesus.
Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we are able to ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen.